Hello, Sword People. This is Guy Windsor, also known as the Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Miles Cup, who is a swordsmanship instructor at SouthCoastSwords.com. That's South Coast as in the South and a coast as in coastline, swords.com. He's an engineer who works at Disneyland, and we're definitely going to be talking about that. You might have seen him on the History Channel's Knife or Death show, and he's a contributor to swordstem.com. And it was actually Brittany Reeves on this show who put me on to swordstem.com. And when I went and I saw that Miles has articles like Why Noobs Fling the Sword and a whole bunch of sciencey stuff about that, which I'll ask him about in a minute, I thought we must get an engineer onto the show. So without further ado, Miles, welcome. Hey, I'm very happy to be here. Glad to be on your show. So if we could just orient everybody, where in the world are you? So I am uh, currently living in Anaheim, California. I live about as close to Disneyland as one can live without actually living in Disneyland. So hopefully that gives a good enough geographic marker for where (laughs) folks could find me uh, if they so choose. Excellent. Um, And you live near Disneyland, I assume, because you work there. That is correct. I am a control systems engineer at the park. Okay. Now, I don't think anybody who doesn't work at parks like that will know what that means. So what does a control systems engineer do? So I am specialized in show control systems specifically. In the theme parks and entertainment world, there are two different aspects to an attraction or what would commonly be called a ride. There's the the ride part. That is what carries you from point A to point B as you get on a vehicle and you go through and experience it. And then there's the show part. That's the part that you see on the ride. And it's typically the reason people go on rides like those at Disneyland. So a control systems engineer, I am responsible for the control of the whole show system. So that includes the audio animatronics. Those are the robotic figures that you see, like the auctioneer on uh, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Or it could be control of the audiovisual system, like at Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. Or it could be control of laser special effects, like on Peter Pan's Flight. My latest project was the <laughs> very new but very shortly opened before closed again star wars rise of the resistance at galaxy's edge oh my god you revolve oh oh so have you been on that you must you must have ridden on it right i have ridden it at least a thousand times i i, I may be <laughs> exaggerating but not by much i i have ridden that uh so many times and it never never gets any less exciting than the first time anytime i ride it that, that attraction wow. is so spectacular and it, it pains my heart that, that as of this recording, the parks are closed right now because uh, there's so many people I wish could experience it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I have to get back to California. I've never been to, to Disneyland and um, I have kids, so I have a golden cast iron excuse to take them there. Um, but yeah, at the moment, it's not a practical proposition. <laughs> and no, incidentally, we're recording this in December. This is December 2020 that we're recording this. So yeah, coronavirus is raging and, and whatnot. So um, so are you like mostly on like the programming side or are you actually building these robotic things or? So what I do is I typically do most of my work at the park itself. So I'm a in charge of maintenance and sustainment Mm -hmm. of these attractions 
to a large extent. I do get to be involved with installation and commissioning. I was an, on the Walt Disney Imagineering project team for building Rise of the Resistance because the idea was is let's embed an engineer in the project while it's still being built by the you know geniuses up at Walt Disney Imagineering. And then when the park uh, receives the attraction, it's delivered. Okay, Walt Disney Imagineering builds the attraction, delivers it to the theme park, then it's operated by the park and their engineering team, which I am a part of. So the idea was embed me in it so I learn how it works. So when it opens, because it's so complicated, we'll be able to keep it running and reliable so there's never any issues or problems with the system. It will just work. So I have built these attractions. I have maintained them. People like to say that Disney has the latest technology, and while that's true, and it's certainly true in the case of Rise of the Resistance, it's also true that Disneyland has every technology, because I have downloaded software on floppy disks to 30-year-old computers that run some ancient attraction, but you know what? Some stuff just works, and we keep it working. (laughs) You know, in in Helsinki, where I used to live, there is this fantastic theme park um, called Lindamaki, which is, you know, it's tiny compared to Disneyland, but it is, it's fantastic. And my kids and my favorite ride there is a roller coaster that's built out of wood and it's been running basically unchanged for about 55, 60 years now. And it has a brake man at the back. So there's actually a human being on the back of the roller coaster controlling it as it goes around the curves and what have you uh, it's, it's just it's fantastic so it's a human ride control system that is amazing yeah. <laughs> there are still places yeah. like that i've seen some fascinating videos and not to digress too much into theme park trivia <laughs> but i've seen some fantastic theme parks and carnivals and in, in uh specifically southeast asia is where i saw these videos where they were uh merry-go-rounds not merry-go-rounds i'll start with the other one uh a Ferris wheel. It was like a miniature Ferris wheel, and it was operated by like a team of guys, and they were like like monkeys climbing all over this thing like a jungle gym, spinning the thing up, and they would then catch it as it comes around again. After they got this thing going super fast with the guests riding it, when it was time for it to stop, they would like grab it and then like run up it in the opposite direction as it was spinning to slow it down. So they were both oh the human God. motive system as well as human brake systems. And these guys were so skilled at what they were doing. They had it choreographed to the millisecond. I would never want to do that. But boy, those guys <laughs> were impressive. If you're talking about an attraction run by a human being, that, that the videos are out there on the internet somewhere. It was amazing. Well, yeah, the, the risk, you know, if you slip or fall or something, it just doesn't bear thinking about you could lose limbs. Yes, that's yeah. the thing. It's it's impressive when it works, but it is certainly very dangerous. And safety is one of the things that we, I do take very seriously at the same time. Well, I mean, you have to. It's like swords, right? It, they are so obviously dangerous that they're actually relatively safe because they're obviously dangerous. And so we take precautions. Absolutely. And you always have to be smarter than the equipment is a phrase I like to say that it's very, very easy to fall into a false sense of security or safety because you always just assume, oh, well, the system will will just take care of it. And people can become complacent. That's one of the the difficulties. Again, I'm starting to digress into so many things. But when you look at self-driving cars is one of the big challenges with that. Because what if the human being does need to input some kind of a correcting stimulus to something that's happening? 
around them. Right. But if the car is driving itself and you don't really have to do anything unless there's an emergency, well, but by then it's too late because your human reaction time will not be there to react if you need one second, two seconds to respond to something happening that the vehicle is not going to take care of, which is why they have sort of driver assist technology is what the current trend is, where you need to keep your hands on the wheel and you need to still pay attention, but the car is still driving itself, more or less, because you have to stay yeah, engaged. I, yeah, I, I think, I think you know, if my my ultimate car safety tip would be you get a big stainless steel spike and you stick it in the middle of the steering wheel pointed at the driver. Right, and that will compel a degree of caution and attention that no amount of driver assist will do or we make the cars fully automated so yes okay computers will eventually make mistakes but they make fewer mistakes than people do and they will actually learn from them in the way that people tend not to and we would probably save thousands and thousands of lives a year but it's this intermediate phase where the cars feel super safe. The cars make you feel like you can just switch off. And so you do just switch off. I mean, a guy got killed in a Tesla about a month ago because he was playing a game on his phone, letting the car drive. And it, it there was a dodgy intersection and he ended up plowing into a crash barrier thing and he died because, yep. you know, the car was, was isn't built to you know, ram into things that's, 70 miles an hour no and and Um, we're not at the point yet that cars are truly autonomous we may get there someday uh hopefully in our lifetimes but it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of engineering to make that happen yeah yeah and again you're always going to have people who want to drive because they like cars and they like driving but for most people who it's just a way of getting from one place to another they'll switch i would think absolutely well and especially if you live in an area with super congested uh commutes in southern california at eight o'clock in the morning i can assure you no one is driving for the pleasure of it (laughs) (laughs) true okay um i think we probably should start talking about swords at some point yes we should otherwise otherwise people might think they're on the wrong show no people this is the sword guy and we will talk about swords okay so so Mars, how did you get into swords and historical martial arts so i started in olympic sport fencing when I was in high school, my oldest brother actually took me to a, a club meeting at Cal State Fullerton, my alma mater and, and his as well. And I attended you know, the weekly practices with them doing foil for a year, then switched to Epe when everyone told me I sucked at foil and I should do Epe instead. And did that until college. And then I got busy with college, stopped fencing. Then when I Went back to Cal State Fullerton, not to complicate the story, I went to a community college and then went back to Cal State Fullerton to finish my advanced degree. I saw a flyer posted on the hallway walls of the computer science building that said Medieval Swordsmanship Club. And there was a picture of Paulus Hector Mayer, though I didn't know it was Paulus Hector Mayer at the time, and saw it and thought, hey, that sounds really cool. When is that? Okay, Club Rush. All right, I'm going to go there. So I went there. I went to the booth talked to a gentleman by the name of Brian Frick, who was the first person I ever talked to about swords or anything, you know, HEMA-related. I shouldn't say swords-related, but HEMA-related specifically. And I asked him, what's this club all about? And he looked at me, cocked his eye, and he said, swords! And I said, great, sign (laughs) me up. And he handed me a Rawlings uh, arming sword and a buckler 
and we put on some fencing masks that they had there at the at the booth and we fenced with sword and buckler and i had the time of my life when we came to a clinch and he wraps my arms and i i look at him and was like you you can do this and he's like yes you can grapple and i said sweet then i hit him in the face with the buckler uh, that was, <laughs> which was a lot of fun to do and then we, we tried out long swords i was back at the booth the next day because we did it for maybe about 10 minutes but oh my gosh it felt so exhilarating to try out such a different kind of a thing that i was used to with olympic sport fencing so I attended the classes that they had in the recreation center that was founded by the late uh, Jason Taylor. He was, you know, my first HEMA instructor. He uh, came from a, both a kung fu background. He was a kung fu instructor, women's self defense instructor, and was also part of ARMA uh, during that period. He left during the many exoduses from ARMA, I guess I should say, <laughs> founded the HEMA Alliance with uh, Jake Norwood and you know a bunch of other great guys who who started that organization. So I was brought up in that really early HEMA Alliance culture because it, that's what we were all about, uh, sharing the knowledge, freedom of study, freedom of practice. Nobody should tell you you're doing it wrong, but keep your mind in the sources kind of a philosophy. So that was a really influential background for for me and a lot of us down here in southern california that that influence is still felt to this day and how we organize ourselves organize our events organize our practices share knowledge that we're not trying to hoard anything we're not trying to keep anything secret if we make a great discovery if we find some new technique let's share it with whoever wants to learn it and you know just just be cool just be cool about it yeah a rising tide lifts all boats absolutely and- yeah, and if, if there there is a kind of thing in, in some traditional martial arts where you're kind of not supposed to disseminate things, you're not supposed to show people stuff. It, this is, and it kind of makes sense if it's state of the art, cutting edge technology. Like, I mean, you, I don't think that the specs for the latest fighter planes should be publicly available necessarily, and how they're training fighter pilots should be like broadcast because that's like cutting edge military technology and it would give an advantage to an actual enemy who might actually shoot you but but yeah i mean this this stuff is medieval or or renaissance it's hundreds of years old it is completely obsolete the idea of hoarding knowledge about it is just it's just weird it is a strange phenomena, and it's also doubly strange when you're talking about trying to represent the art in the best way that you can. So if somebody looks around and they say, oh, the fighting sucks or whatever, and then I'll say, okay, so what are we going to do to make them not suck? <laughs> what, right. what, 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 what pearls of wisdom can we share with our fellow sword fighters so we can get the greatest enjoyment out of this art? Because you're absolutely right. 400 years ago, yes, this stuff would have been stuff that would have been guarded quite zealously, just like maps of the Americas were as closely guarded as you know nuclear submarine secrets today, such that I have questions about you know who maybe even knew about America before there was an America, because it would have been a state secret if there was a continent on the other side of the ocean. I thought about that. You know, hmm. is, is it possible? Maybe. Don't know. Most people think, you know, that wasn't known yet. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Because it would have been a secret, right? So it's sort of like asking a question in 500 years, what today would be a secret that's just not public knowledge. But with sword fighting, who cares? It's 
<laughs> exactly. It's, it, we're all just here to have fun and hit each other with swords. Precisely. Um, but we're also, we also care about doing it better, like better than we did it last week. And you come at this from an engineering background, and uh, I know you're involved with the Sword STEM website. That's Sword STEM, STEM as in S-T-E-M, Science, Technology, Engineering, and Maths, if I'm getting that correctly. Um, so I don't really have enough kind of engineering knowledge to ask the right questions. So how about this? What is that all about, and why do you care? All right, so... The whole concept of sword STEM started when Sean Franklin said, wouldn't it be more fun if sword fighting was like my math homework? I'm just kidding. <laughs> didn't, start like, didn't quite start like that. But I, I can imagine him saying that, though. <laughs> he, he, he did. I, I have to say that in preparation for this discussion, I talked to Sean. I said, hey, Sean, what do you want to make sure I say? And he, and he said that. So, Sean, I stole your joke. There you go. But I gave you credit, so it's fine. <laughs> but now, now, now I'll get serious for a moment. So sure. Sean is a, a mechatronics engineer. I'm an electrical engineer by training. And there are other people of, of technical backgrounds who support what we're trying to do. The true genesis of what we're doing with SwordSTEM started with Longpoint 2014. And at that event, Sean was there and he was watching a pool fight and somebody leaned over to him and said, wow, this is the cleanest fighting I've ever seen. We're doing so great. Uh, you know, HEMA is coming such a long way. Isn't this amazing? Somebody else watching that same fight later said to Sean, boy, wasn't that just garbage fencing? Oh, my God, this is the worst fencing I've ever seen. It was so ugly and unclean. So there is a quantifiable question there. What makes a quote-unquote clean fight? How does one analyze the data so we can actually determine is the fighting getting better? Because we're running tournaments. There's data that comes out of those tournaments because of the scoring metrics that we use we award points differently if somebody got hit on the head and then they delivered an afterblow, or they both hit each other in the same instant and that is a different recorded penalty and if you get three doubles you both lose so there's data that can be mined and extracted for analysis to determine are people fencing cleanly now as it turns out long point 2014 was one of the uncleanest long points ever so the person who said the fighting wasn't really great ended up being correct but that is the idea of sword stem not just in analyzing tournaments but using it to facilitate and develop and disseminate knowledge of swords using stem using science technology engineering and mathematics so getting the anecdotes and the squishy knowledge out of hema and replacing it with analysis-based understanding of what's going on with the swords our tournaments our training methods how do you quantify things like psychological pressure? How do you quantify things like reaction times? How do you quantify, even going drilling down a little deeper, how do you quantify things like a question such as, well, my fetter has a fuller in it. Does that make it take sets more easily than if it didn't? Or I want to describe how motion is affected and changing direction does it change direction? Can I guide my sword in its arc to change direction? Or do I need to stop, redirect? Breaking down point control and thrust accuracy. Breaking down how do people's behaviors change using game theory based on how we design different tournament rule sets. All of this stuff falls under that sword stem 
methodology. And when you go to the website, and you'll see articles going back to 2018, analyzing all of these questions that I've talked about. Every single one of the ones I've talked about has been addressed in a sword stem article. And if it hasn't been, let us know if you want us to analyze it, and we will write an article and address that topic because we have the tools. We have this thing called science that we can use as a method to analyze these questions and get some, maybe not the answers, but give us a clear perception of what's going on so we don't have to rely on anecdotal myths, if you will. Sure. Uh, Can you give us an example of something you have done differently based because of one of these articles, one of these investigations has demonstrated that something that you thought was correct is actually not. <laughs> oh my gosh. There are actually quite a few of them. One of probably the more controversial. Well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. One of the more controversial uh, articles that Sean has published, and it's the article from April 2nd, 2020, a win is a win, how weighted point values don't affect match outcomes. That one is certainly a thought-provoking analysis that compares what the point values were versus how do fencers actually perform. And what ends up coming out is that it really, from the article, and everyone should read it in case I'm I'm misquoting the findings, but what is interesting... I'll link to it in the show notes. Absolutely. So what the article discusses is that ultimately whoever hits more is who wins, which makes some degree of sense because the fencer who is better is the one who will hit more. So if a person can hit the hands four times, that's better than somebody who could maybe only hit the head once. In the SoCal Sword Fight Square and Rule set, a headshot's worth four points and hands are worth one point. So if you're a competent fencer, you're more likely to get more of those hand shots in than the less competent fencer is to land a single headshot. Does that make sense? It, so um, just just to make I, I think I get it, but then I have quite a lot of experience in fencing tournaments. So let me let me just recap what you just said and make sure I've got it right, so that the listeners can can follow on. So what we're talking about is a tournament rule set where different targets have different point values associated with them, and that's supposed to encourage. So in your example, four points to the head, one point to the hand that will encourage people to go for the more valuable target rather than just sniping at the hands all the time. Yes. And and yet what the analysis actually suggests is that those rule sets don't have that desired effect. So I, I'm not we're not saying that. What we're saying is, okay. is that ultimately what ends up happening is is that the more competent fencers regardless of whatever the point values are will end up winning regardless of how the points are weighted. Ah uh, okay, so it doesn't so it's not about what targets they're going for. It's it doesn't it doesn't privilege the less um, less or less skilled fencer. Right. That that's what the analysis points towards. That the better fencer is going to perform better, regardless of whatever the rule set is. Now there is value in point weighting because it will affect the type of fencing that you see from the people who don't rise to that upper echelon level like the people who win are going to win no matter what you get what i'm saying so okay. like just okay. be, if you're not a competent oh. fencer you're not going to score a headshot on I, i'm going to pick a name out of a hat let's say tish cool right tish cool i'm picking his name i'm not i don't have any affinity of just picking a name of a great fencer randomly okay for anybody listening okay just saying if you're that caliber of fencer you're going to win 
pretty much regardless of whatever the rule sets are because you just train that well. But sure. the other fencers in the lower tiers, let's say the more average fencer who can percolate up to that level with training and 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 practice, mm -hmm. they will still change their behaviors for how the fencing is going to be based on the rule set. So if they know that the heads are worth four points if two average fencers face each other, their behavior will change because they are fencing to those higher target values. But if you if you drop an A-list fencer in there, they're going to win no matter what the rule set is. <laughs> that's, that's the finding. Okay. And that is one of the sort of surprising kind of counterintuitive results that you would that you <laughs> get from analyzing the data. I don't understand why that's surprising. I would expect the more experienced fencer or the you know, the higher level fencer to win no matter what the rules are. Because it, initially you might think that if somebody was fencing competently, that there's that chance that because a headshot can change the outcome of the match so severely, in our rule sets at least, because a headshot is worth four points, then you would think that, well, that person may have tagged the hands four times, but fencing is fencing and it's a dangerous endeavor. Random things can happen. A person might be able to get that head strike in and change the outcomes of the match if it's a lower skilled fencer oh, facing okay. a higher one because there's chaos in, in battle, if you will. But the trends sure. of the data yeah, okay. show that that doesn't really tend to happen. Uh, okay. And, and you said that's sort of controversial. I would say when I first saw the headline of that article come out, it was controversial to me because I did talk about okay. it with Sean. So when I say controversial, I mean to, to people who are following Swordstem religiously. When I saw that article <laughs> drop, I went to Sean. And I said, Sean, is this really true? And he says, yes, look at the numbers. They're all published right here. And I said, oh my gosh, you're right. So what do we do? Do we get rid of weighted point values? Does Does none of that matter? And you know, through our conversation, it was, no, it still matters because you're still going to change the way people behave. We've certainly seen changed behaviors in tournament uh, participants based on whether or not you have fully weighted after blows versus not fully weighted after blows. By that, I mean, if two fencers strike each other at the same time, and let's say the head is worth three points and the leg is worth one point, one person gets three points, one person gets one point if it was a head and leg simultaneous hit. That is going to be a different behavior that's encouraged versus if it's a uh, deductive afterblow rule, where if one person gets hit in the head, but then a moment later delivers a strike to the leg, okay, if you do a one-point subtraction, now the person who hit the head gets two points instead of one. That will be a different kind of a analysis in terms of a fighter's game theory than a fully weighted afterblow. What's really weird and I think, Sean, is another article about this, and I don't remember the details of it, but in our Sword and Buckler tournament at SoCal Sword Fight, he's actually done some number crunching that shows that the fully weighted afterblow fencing in the Sword and Buckler tournament was cleaner than our longsword fencing, which was really weird to me. I did not think that was going to happen, <laughs> but apparently the numbers show that it did. So to me, that would be another kind of controversial thing. Not controversial as in like there's thousands of people in the community discussing it, but I'm a tournament organizer. I want to mm -hmm. know quantitatively how do the rules that we make affect the way that people fence because there's so much out there. I don't mean to, I, to cut you off, but there's so much out there that people sort of have this intuitive understanding about how people behave in tournaments or they see one pool and they say, oh my God, the, the fencing here is garbage or the fencing here is great. But when you look at the numbers across a whole tournament, you're like, this is the cleanest tournament we've ever had. Or it's the most garbage tournament we've ever had. The question is, is you have to use some data to quantify it. 
Okay, so, but you can use rule sets to encourage the kind of fencing you want to see. Yes, you absolutely can, which is a practice that Longpoint pioneered initially, and we've taken that and run with it at, at the tournaments I organize at SoCal Swordfight. I primarily am involved in, in that tournament, but I will happily help anybody who wants to get my <laughs> input for any of the other tournaments that they run about certain behaviors that are encouraged by the way you weight the points versus how much time you give people. I'll give you an example. I'll give you a perfect example of how rules can radically change the way people behave. Have you ever seen the two-second Hail Mary? No. Okay, uh, you wouldn't unless you watch a lot of tournaments or, or go to a lot of tournaments. So I'll, I'll describe to you and the listeners what I mean by the two-second Hail Mary. Really, it's a three-second Hail Mary because two seconds is not enough time. I have been in tournaments where there I am down by maybe four points. There are three seconds left on the clock. And so the ring is maybe about 10 meters in diameter. So what I will do with a longsword I will sprint as fast as I can at my opponent and swing wildly for their head in the hopes that I land a hit just before the director calls time when the buzzer goes. That's the three-second Hail Mary. I call, wow, it a three second, I call it a three-second Hail Mary because it would, if it's two seconds left on the clock, it's, you're not fast enough. You won't be able to cover that 30 meters fast enough to make it there. Okay, I'm talking like you line up on the edge of the ring like you're mm-hmm. at the starting line and you're waiting for the gun to fire. Okay, I have seen this done and I have done it myself and I have won matches doing this. Okay, and it is the yeah. craziest, most unmartial thing that you will ever do, right? And I say this as somebody who has done it and won with it, okay? Yep. What we did at SoCal Sword Fight and various other t- t- attempts have been made to sort of solve the three-second Hail Mary problem, our solution was when the clock, when you hit that last exchange, right? So you fought an exchange, there's three seconds left on the clock. We will let the time continue to tick, after the end of the match, right? Let's say it's 90 seconds regulation time and you have three seconds left. We will say fight and let the fencers fight until the next exchange is called halt by the director. What this does is it lets the fencers fence and it lets them just decide because, you know, the person who's defending, they are up points. So they do have an advantage, right? Let's say they're up by a whole headshot, whatever that's worth. So they just need to defend and not get hit in the head. Or if it's an afterblow rule set, they have to def- maybe they'll get hit in the head, but if they deliver the afterblow, they'll still win. Whatever needs to happen, but they will not be charged at recklessly by a guy from the other side of the ring, and the person who is attacking them has to go for the head because they know that if they don't hit the head cleanly, they will lose the match. So that is what weighted point values can do for changing your behavior and not just point values there's so much that goes into creating a tournament rule set just how you count down the time changes the difference of a match and i'm a big advocate for if you know what if there's fencers and they're that close just let them fence out that last exchange even if it's another 10 seconds 15 seconds my experience has been it never really causes the tournament to run over significantly more than than doing it. And it's way better than somebody who loses because, oh, there's two seconds left on the clock. And maybe if I had one more exchange, I might win, might not win. I don't know. I'd rather they fight it out and discover. <laughs> sure. Um, 
would, uh, for example, um, red carding the the Hail Mary for dangerous fencing not also work? Does that have an effect? <laughs> so there's a whole lot I could say about red carding that might get me in trouble. Well, and- <laughs> that's okay. You go for it. So what I would say is, is I'd say that there is not a strong enough incentive in the community to penalize our friends is what ah. I think it ends up coming down to. And it, it is possible to do the Hail Mary safely, right? Like if you just put yourself in, in Flug and Plow or Long Point and just charge with your point forward at your opponent, that's not really that dangerous. You're just running as fast as you can and you're going to try and like tickle them with your point. Am I going to red card somebody for doing that when it's not technically against the rules? But then I have to say, well, it's reckless fencing, like you just said. And, and in some cases, it certainly can be. And I have seen it done recklessly. But people, I don't think, have a the gumption to look at their friends and say, you get a red card or even a black card or whatever the penalty needs to be for how egregious the offense was. I'm not sure that the whole community is at that point yet, because I've seen instances where things that were obviously red cards get bumped down to quote unquote verbal warnings which nobody pays right. any attention to and it's no and it's not even a, a mark that I'm trying to give against anybody for not doing that because it's a hard thing to do speaking as somebody who has had to give warnings and ejections to fencers who are my friends and then afterwards still go to the bar and have and have a beer with them right that that is a difficult thing to do and as long as our community is so volunteer driven that is always going to be a difficult thing to do until we codify what that is and make hard rules and hard guidelines for what those things have to be so that way it's not hey man why are you being uh, so mean to me aren't i your friend you can point to the rules and say look dude i'm not your friend right now i am enforcing these rules in this tournament it's nothing personal and that's a difficult thing to do by by any metric yeah i i've never had that problem really because i've always been a the professional instructor who is you know not not interacting with the fences as a peer because I'm mostly not a peer. I'm I'm somebody they are paying to do stuff for them. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Right. So I've managed to avoid that. And, you know, what I always say when I'm uh, presiding in a tournament is um, you must expect the judges and the president, particularly me, to be drunk, blind, and biased against you. Exactly. So, you know, basically, expect me to be an asshole, and you'll you'll come out thinking actually that was that went okay. But yeah, I mean, I've 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 thrown people. I've I basically, um, you know, if people are late coming up to scratch, I bend them straight away. Um, if they give me any lip or talk back in the slightest, I just you know, disqualify them. I mean, I, I just <laughs> I, I, I'm mean, right? Because, and- <laughs> you know, because I I don't have to I don't have to show up. You know the next week and you know fence with them so exactly and and that's it's it's going to be a challenging thing for the community i think we're getting better about it there are a lot of initiatives people are pushing for uh a lot of things people have already talked at length about on, on this very show judge training codified rule sets for maybe geographic regions leagues ways to make it a little bit more formal so that way when people are penalized and the rules do come down they know that at the end of the day they can still be friends and it's not nobody is saying you're a terrible person you're just saying you broke the rules in the context of this game there's a penalty right yeah it's like being a good dm 
when doing Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. Absolutely. And some of the best directors I've ever had were really good DMs. That <laughs> <laughs> doesn't surprise me. Um, now, um, could we just like have a, a quick look at something more? That was sort of data-driven analysis. Have you done much in the way of sort of physics and physical engineering regarding yes. swords? Yes. Yes. So there there's a lot on sword stem right now about the physics of how swords move and work mm-hmm. for example there's an article that sean wrote about the concept of uh, uh how do i want to say it i fence with control somebody says i don't need to use equipment because i fence with control and fencing with control is the same thing as if you fenced with equipment because if i need to go hard in a martial situation i will just do it and sean wrote an article to that effect, discussing what does that really mean, I fence with control. Well, it means that you are going to accelerate your strike, but you have to decelerate it. Otherwise, you will actually hurt your opponent. So you're training a very specific muscle memory when you do that. That's going to be not there if you need it to be there. So the example might be somebody who only trains that type of of fencing, you know, so that slow work, which is useful. We're not knocking it, but we're saying that it's not the whole picture of how a sword needs to move. Because if you train yourself to slow down at the moment of impact, when you go to cut a tatami mat, your sword will not make it through. You will get buried halfway through because you've trained yourself to decelerate your strike at the target and not carry the sword through the target, which is the whole point of swords is to go through things, whether it's a cut or a thrust. So that's one way that we can use physics to break down what is really happening when you train a certain way. Or there's an article that Sean wrote about the the old adage, what is it? It's like a, you need so many pounds of pressure to penetrate a target. And he, he delves into all of the things that go into that expression. I think it's so many pounds of force. And the whole idea is like, well, pounds of force doesn't really even make a whole lot of sense. No, to say I was that. Say, right? I'm not an engineer, for, but even I know that. <laughs> right, because it, it's like, what? You know, no, force is measured in newtons, and you just gave a, a, a measure of gravitational acceleration weight. That doesn't make any sense. So he wrote an article about that. So I, without just listing all the fantastic articles, those are some of the ways that we're trying to use physics to analyze how do swords actually perform when they're used how are how do swords move and even analyzing some of the interesting ways that swords can move such as the different degrees of freedom of a sword talking about cutting versus rotation versus translational motion what can those things mean so basically rotating is how spinny something is translating is how like side to side something is as it moves through space and cutting is like well how arky is it how much does it pass through an arc those kinds of questions are things that sword stem is used to to tackle so how do you measure how hard a sword hits ah so that i believe is the subject of yet another article but there 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 are some different ways that you can talk about that though uh, because i don't want to get into what really should be the subject of a of an article and and sean wrote the articles on those things what i can talk a bit about is that there are there's the concept of the pressure right how how narrow the sword comes down to a point is a measure of how hard something can hit which is why in my experience some rolling some synthetic swords have to me felt more painful than being hit with a steel sword sometimes even though the synthetic will never cut me but 
being hit at such a high velocity with something that has a wide surface area really can hurt. <laughs> Some of the worst bruising no, sure. I've ever gotten is from synthetics. And there's quantifiable ways that we can discuss, okay, it's tip velocity is the same versus the metal sword, but it's happening over a wider surface area, so there's going to be more pressure, which is going to hurt. That kind of stuff can be discussed. You can also talk about how much flex a sword is going to have and then how much that flex is going to transfer energy into the body when it hits. So, I mean, obviously speaking, that that's not even non-intuitive. If you get hit with a stiff sword, it hurts a lot because all the energy is being transferred into the person versus right. if the sword is a little bit more flexy, that energy goes into the bend and hopefully you don't crack your friend's ribs. Right. And that's also, you know, if you're, if you're striking to actually hit stuff, you have to organize your skeleton behind the blow so that the force coming back from the target doesn't kind of you know, basically move the sword backwards. Yes. Yes. Which is a, a, another kind of sort of counterintuitive principle of, of physics. There was a question in one of my physics courses, a thought experiment that asked, uh, you're alone in you're, you're in your bedroom and it's dark and you need to close the door, but you don't want to get out of bed. So next to you, you have a rubber ball and you have a piece of putty. Which do you throw at the door to close it? I would probably throw the putty. Right. That's the correct answer because the putty is going to smush against the door yeah. and all of the energy is going to get transferred into the door. Whereas if you throw the rubber ball at the door, it's going to bounce off. And so the energy that would get transferred to the door gets bounced away. So there's your physics lesson for the day. <laughs> do, do, do you know, I, I really need to get over to the States, um, 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 maybe with you and perhaps with Sean or whatever, because I do a bunch of stuff that is difficult to to teach in terms of conventional engineering language because i'm not an engineer but i tend to be able to hit hard and fast without much effort and i can stop the sword even though it's moving very quickly because i don't i don't try and stop the sword i just put an obstacle in its path so it stops against a bit of my skeleton in effect mm -hmm. right so and i do these things and i teach them and i can get people to do them but there are some students who really need a proper intellectual understanding of what they're doing to be able to do it properly. Right. Yes. And which is not me. I, I, I do it because it feels right, which is not intellectual at all. Um, but yes, it would be really interesting to, to, you know, pick apart what exactly it is I'm doing and be able to sort of explain it in terms of you know, physics and engineering. And that's a very good point that you bring that up because that is the subject of the articles that I published on why noobs fling the sword and, right. and why I thought those articles were necessary. I, I have trained students who – and nothing against them, but it's just what we, what what is their experience in life. Students who, in my estimation, didn't really even understand how they walked. Like, okay, oh, yeah. stand like this, okay, and, and, they, and they will stand that way. And I was like, okay, bend your knees. No, bend your knees. No, bend your knees. Okay, that's kind of close. All right, now take a passing step forward. And they'll like fall over themselves <laughs> onto the ground yeah. doing a passing step. And I, and I say, wait a minute. Okay, so we need to take a step back. And we need to look at what are the things about your body that 
your body is capable of doing using kinesiology and it's like okay what does your knee do your knee is a hinge it can flex and extend okay great what can your hips do they can you know do lateral flexion they can do all those you know motions that are there they can you know what can your elbow do pronate and supinate and show them and really break it down into how does your skeleton move and when students click with that it is such a wonderfully liberating thing to see them discover what their body is capable of doing and then after six months a year two years however long they want to invest in it then they're out there fencing their friends or in a tournament and doing well that is when the engineering and mathematics really will start to pay off sure uh i mean i find that you know when i'm teaching people to do basic actions I start with something they're already doing, like walking or standing or whatever, and I just modify it bit by bit until it's in the desired direction. Um, because I find that using too many like verbal instructions, like if you tell somebody who's standing to bend their knees, they might do something absolutely horrible to their bodies because they put their weight in the wrong place. Absolutely. <laughs> And, and even um, if, when you're demonstrating it in front of them, they, they may not understand how do we make the neural pathway connection from the brain to the muscles because if the neural pathway has never been developed because maybe they didn't need to, then that can be a challenge. So learning sure. the language of kinesiology, I will just put it out there, I think is essential for anyone who wants to profess to be a professional at this art. I think it's so essential to be able to communicate intelligently and quantifiably about how do the muscles and the joints and the bones and everything move. And it's a language that I'm not even sure was necessarily available to the original fencing masters, but the further you wasn't. get but the further you get into their period, you know, the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, and the more scientific they were able to become because the language was developed for them, the more that their fencing could be discussed so uh, in such a sophisticated language, but by that point, swords were not nearly as relevant as they once were. So I wonder what could Fabris have said about rapier, or what could Lichtenauer have said about longsword if they had the linguistic tools that we have today? Yeah, that's an interesting thought, because one thing we definitely see in the fencing literature is, I mean, you can take pretty much any 18th century small sword manual, and anyone who can read that language can reproduce what the text is telling them to do um, with a bit of, you know, it takes work and attention and practice, but there's nothing, you know, like Angelo, for example, he says that, you know, the, between Tierce and Cart is three inches. He says it. Or is it four inches? I haven't read it for long. I think it's maybe it's four inches. Right? He gives they, a number. He, he, he gives a number. And it's like, you can do that and you can take a ruler and you can actually just do it. It's like, oh, that's how big it's supposed to be. Right. And he, he's super specific about all these details which you just don't get. You certainly don't get it in any of the Lithenauer texts. Fury, you get some details, um, like, you know, how, how to step, and and the images are really consistent about where your weight should be and that sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, imagine imagine Fury who... Imagine Fury writing like Angelo. That would that would have saved me probably 10 years of my life. <laughs> right. What, what, what if Fiore had the tools of sword stem at his fingertips? <laughs> and, and that's what is so great about that. And I certainly don't want to discourage anybody by thinking there's some, you know, great barrier to this knowledge. 
And, you know, when I make a statement like kinesiology should be something everybody should learn, I'm simply saying that the information, if you need it to help you teach better, is out there. If you're teaching just fine and you and your students say they don't need it, great. Then you've already gotten most of the way there. But if you are encountering students that you think, how can I get through to the student? There are tools that can help you quantifiably explain what is happening with the human body because science has spent centuries figuring that out. Don't reinvent the wheel. The knowledge is there. Yeah. Um, it gets kind of interesting when you're dealing with a martial art from a different culture and you know, any historical martial art, no matter what country it comes from, is a different culture to that same country today because, you know, cultures change. But, you know, you have... Um, yeah, there are examples of medieval texts referring to humors, for example, or um, you have, or if you're learning a, a Chinese martial art and the instructor tells you to sink your chi, you know, if if you say sink your chi to an engineer, they will quite rightly look at you and go, yeah, what, what? Mm-hmm. Um, but within within that within that art as an expression of the culture it comes from, if you understand the intellectual structure, basically the, the, uh, the paradigm that the instructor is actually referring to, then it can actually be a useful instruction because it will lead you to make the necessary change in your body. Absolutely. And if, it's not necessary or desirable to communicate in that language. You can, and you can use your new language to communicate those same ideas. Right. Yeah, For example, one, one of those um, ideas, and there's a fantastic book out there that I'd like to recommend. It's called fight like a physicist. I, I don't remember <laughs> the author. I don't remember the author, but it, it's, he's an MMA guy who studied physics and wrote a book on MMA, but he talked about it from a physics point of view. And he said something in there. Oh, I've got uh, to buy that book. It's a fantastic book, highly recommended, and it's a really quick read. You can read it in like three hours. It's it's really short. And in the book, he talks about um, the the connection between the upper body and the lower body, and that the only connection that exists between the upper torso and the lower torso, for basically the shoulders and the hips, is the spinal cord. That's it. Hmm. That's the only thing connecting the two. So when you go to deliver a punch – the best punches are delivered when there's synchronization between the shoulders and the hips. But how does one make that one solid compound body when there's all squishy bits there? It's just the spinal cord. And the spinal cord doesn't clench. It doesn't do anything, right, except rotate about its axis. And you don't want the spinal cord to rotate when you throw a punch. That's how you herniate a disc. You want your whole body to be in synchronization. So how do you achieve that? And what he t- talks about is what's sort of known as the martial kya. When people sharply inhale or exhale when they throw a punch, what that does is it locks your diaphragm rigid. So right. your squishy bits become solid bits. So then your shoulders and your hips become one unit when you deliver that punch and you hit with the full force of your body weight. And that is how those really amazing boxers that you watch like you know tyson is one of them one of the strongest hitters i've ever seen is able to deliver such cohesive strikes and synchronization between their shoulders and their hips so 
Right. When a martial artist from an Eastern culture, and again, I'm, I don't know what how they would describe that, but I'm not sure they would describe it in that same you know physical terms. They would describe it in the holistic terms that they've been using for hundreds of years from their tradition. But when I read that in the book and I said, wait a minute, this is that thing that I've seen, you know, Asian martial artists do when they cut tatami and they're really great cutters and are able to do some amazing things with tatami cutting that I wish I could do. And when I fence, I will sometimes do it just instinctively and I will hit my opponent and they'll say, wow, you hit me really hard on that one. And I said, I didn't think that I did. I didn't swing any harder. I just, you know, just clenched in my, in my, in my diaphragm and my torso when i delivered the strike but in doing so linked all of my muscles and all of my joints tendons everything together to deliver that strike so fight like a physicist talks about concepts like these and they really help to quantify again because it's all about data-driven analysis of what we're doing to make ourselves better martial artists well, that was a long digression but there you go <laughs> <laughs> that was an excellent digression but, um okay We've been talking for a little while now, and I have a feeling that this could, this could go on for hours and hours and hours, and that would be great. But but you know, I, I have to sort of <laughs> you know, if we if talk I, for three hours, then 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 I'm going to get in trouble um, with some of the listeners who are like, but you know, guy, I need it to be done by the time I've finished my I don't know, commute. Yes, I'm whatever. looking at the time right um, now, and it's already been an hour, and we've covered only half the things we wanted to. I'm I know, so sorry. I know, I know. Okay. <laughs> No, no, no. That's great. We're just going to have to get you back. That'd be um, fantastic. Love to come back. Okay. So um, let me skip over some of the items on my list and and cut straight to the one, the questions that I, I tend to um, finish up with. And the first is, what is the best idea you've never acted on? So there's not an original thought in my mind on this one. There's in terms of what That's I okay. wish I would do. I, I've really admired all the translators in the community, particularly some of the ones who are just machines, like Rainier Van Nort and uh, Chris Holzman, who just churn out book after book after book of treatises that I've I just gobble them up. So that's something that I've admired about a lot of people in the community because they make what we do possible, bringing it from languages I can't read into languages I can. I want to translate a treatise. There's one that I have my eye on right now is the 1579 Gisliero, I think is a wonderful little book. Would love to see that rendered into English. Lots of people say they're working on it, and I hope that they come to fruition. I'd really like to translate that one. And I'm also working on (laughs) – I'm going to get in trouble with some of my uh, classmates for saying this, but I'm working on an Italian rapier book, and I have been working on it for admittedly a few years now. (laughs) And I I really just need to follow my own advice and quit talking about it and just do it. So maybe during this uh, furlough period from Disneyland, I can – lock myself in a cloister for a month or two month or so and just crank that out and just finish it well so how is your italian so it, it it's piccolo very little it's uh it's it was okay. passable enough when i went to italy such that my taxi drivers did not know i spoke english so i considered okay. that a win when i was in that's italy. a huge win uh, I'd learned Duolingo for about three months. That, that's the extent of my Italian. When I went to Rome okay. to go visit uh, Francesco Loda and visit Florence and uh, attend his uh, Loda's event in Rome, which was 
lots of fun. I wanted to not have to rely on sign language when I was there to communicate sure. with people. And the extent of my Italian was such, and I'm going to share this story because it's amusing, was such that I went to Pompeii with my wife. We got there very late in the day because, and I'm going to share this part too. Tom Poy is an excellent conversationalist if you've ever met him, rapier fencer from Spain. He is I know most, who he is. I've not met him yet. But. He is a wonderful conversationalist. He is the image of the Spanish fencing master from every story you've ever read, but he's a real guy. So we were late getting to Pompeii because we got sucked into conversation with him at breakfast after the event. Made it to Pompeii, and we were just... And we made the mistake of not getting a tour guide. So we wandered Pompeii looking for the sites, but the city is a ruin. We finally find one of the famous landmarks, which is the Lupanare. That's the famous brothel from from Pompeii. Mm -hmm. But we get there and they just locked the doors. So... I was upset because I we didn't get to go in and see it. So we're about to, you know, dejectedly walk out of Pompeii and I see this old man coming up the road, jingling like these really old looking keys. And I look at him and I walk over to him and I'm like, you know, Señor. And he's like, "See?" Sí. And I was like, uh, and I said, "Lupanare apero or abierto." I, I can't remember the name. I knew the words better then. <laughs> and he looks at his watch and he's like, "Cinco, qué sé?" You know, it's it's closed. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and I was like, Dui minuti, dui minuti, por favore. He looks up the road one way, looks up the road the other way, makes this grunt, walks up the road, lets us into the brothel, and we get to take pictures and save the day because I could best barely speak Italian to this gentleman <laughs> so we could experience it. So I'll have to improve my Italian. I'm sure I butchered it in my rendition of the story, but that's where I'm at. <laughs> okay. When it comes to speaking Italian, I have one absolute cast iron way for everyone to think your Italian sounds great, right? If I'm hanging out with people who are Italian speakers and they don't know me and whatever, I I always start out by saying something like, yo, Paolo, Italiano, como un uomo, Italiano, tutti mi amici, pensano che yo sono Italiano, right? Which is just, okay, for those who are not familiar with Italian, that is just the worst, strongest, most English accent. And what I said was, um, I speak Italian um, like an Italian man. And all of my friends, all of my Italian friends think that I am Italian, which is obviously completely not true. So everybody falls about laughing. And then when I start speaking Italian, compared to what I had just sounded like, I sound amazing. So, you know, I, ha- I have an accent. My Italian isn't, isn't that great. And, you know, I've taught a class in Italian once. But if you start out like that, you set the bar so low that it's, yeah, everyone thinks you, you speak really good Italian after that. Because if you can do it badly, then if you can do it that well badly, then imagine how you can do it when you actually try and attempt. <laughs> it, it's, yeah, sort yeah. Of, it's, it's sort of like uh, actors who are tasked with acting badly on purpose. It's actually quite yeah. hard. Very hard. Um, yeah, but also, you know, it breaks the ice and, you know, everyone laughs and, you know, it, it just makes everything flow. Also, of course, you've got to drink wine, lots of wine. That really helps my Italian accent too. Yes, um, and that was something I enjoyed a, a lot about my time in Italy. It was – I couldn't find any water, so that was the only thing left to drink. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm reliably informed that there's a lot of water in wine, so you were fine. Yes. Okay. <laughs> 
All right. My last question. Uh, somebody gives you a million dollars or similar amount of money to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend it? Ah, uh, so uh, of course, in the the usual sense, I would say you know, I want to invest it in the school, South Coast Swords. I would want to grow it because it's not just a martial arts school, but it's also a business that provides fencing equipment to students all over North America. So I would certainly want to see that business grow and get more inventory and get more employees and really crank that up. But there is one thing that I would use that for, which I think the community is missing right now. Speaking again about the purposes of sword STEM, I didn't mention this earlier, but one of the other purposes of sword STEM is to inform the conversation about safety in fencing. Coming back full Ooh. circle to what we talked about at the beginning, you know, safety is is such an yeah, important yeah, thing yeah. because we want to be able to do what we do for a long, long time. Now, in terms of hand protection, hand protection is way better than it was 10 years ago. I remember fencing in lacrosse gloves and every <laughs> night you were you were risking a broken finger. Let's be honest. Every night you fenced, you were risking a broken finger. And I know people, friends of mine, who got broken fingers at our practices. It was not a great way to go. Nowadays, you can get a Spes Heavy. It's a tank. Uh, pro gauntlets are starting to come down the pipe. And once they start to get variable sizes, I think that'll be really great. The Thulk uh, Weapon Master gauntlets are, are you know, on the way. So there's lots of in hand protection that was not there a while ago. But what is still missing in HEMA is a properly fitted fencing mask for what we do. So okay. if, I could, if I could invest some R&D money into determining what can we do to improve the traditional fencing mask and make it more fitted and suited for what we do? That's what I'd like to see next. Uh, so why would you start with a fencing mask? Why don't start, you start with something like a helmet? I, I'm not even sure it would necessarily be a fencing mask or a helmet, just something that is purpose-built and off-the-shelf in very various sizes and still as affordable as a mid to high range mask is what our community is uh, is missing right now well we do have something like that it's called um that is the terry tyndall mask uh, it was originally made by that guy's products it's now produced by horse bows and so i've my, had mine for ages the the issue that i have with those is for okay. one they had they do have a lot they're great i'm not taking away from the helmet just, but I'm saying it in the same way that steel gauntlets existed in the HEMA community before lo- the pro gauntlets did, before the Spes heavies did. And the same issue that I have with the that guy's masks, I have with the the, the gauntlets, the metal gauntlets, is that they're expensive. They're at least five hundred dollars from the ah, price okay. that I've seen. Right? It's five hundred dollars sure. to invest in it, far outside the range of most you know ordinary fencers, and a lot of them have to be custom fitted, or they just don't fit properly. Yeah. And they're maintenance intensive, right? Anything made out of metal, you're going to have to oil and polish unless it's made out of stainless steel, which um, has its own my, difficulties. Yeah. Well, my That Guy's product, um, I have never done any maintenance of any kind to it, and I've been using it as my only longsword mask for about a decade. So okay. it was that, expensive. But if, you know, in the same time, I would have bought probably two or three fencing masks because they, they get damaged quite easily. Exactly. And that's what I'm driving at. I'd like to see a a fencing mask that you can get that's suited for what we do for about $200. Because because the fencing masks that we have, uh, they have no padding on the side, most of them, unless you add your own. And the suspension on the top, 
I'm I'm not sure, and this is a thing that SwordStem would have to turn its attentions towards investigating what the money would be used for. What are the force transferences? What are the impact characteristics of being hit on the head with a long sword when wearing a fencing mask? Maybe it's fine. Maybe Olympic fencing masks are perfectly suited for what Ooh, we're doing. They're really not. No, they're not. I, but you get, but you get what you. I'm saying. I, I, I'm saying it as a scientist, right? I don't yeah, know. Sure. I, I no, can't right. say that I know. I Maybe they're cool. fine. Yeah. Probably not. I can make an educated guess that they're probably not. But as a scientist, I don't know one way or the other because I don't believe the data has ever been gathered on that subject. So when you say, if I had a million dollars, what would I like to spend maybe half a million on to find out? And I think our heads and brains are worth at least half a million dollars. Let's investigate, you know, how are fencing masks good? How are they deficient? and devising a product that is suited for what we do so one doesn't have to spend $500 on a fencing mask to to do what we do long-term. Mm. And, and maybe somebody doesn't like the aesthetics of a steel helmet, right? I mean, that's another thing, too. Some folks just don't like the appearance of anything that looks... And <laughs> steel helmets are fine, but anything that looks, quote-unquote, garby, right? They don't want to look like they're dressing up oh, like yeah, a knight yeah, or yeah. whatever, right? They just want to look like a an athlete. And sport fencing, you know, they do have that aesthetic. They just look like sportsmen, athletes, and that's fine. That's what they want to do. There's room in the market for everything. But, but, but you have to dedicate quite a bit of research and funding into finding out for fencing masks. Just like the folks over at Pro Gauntlet, they got started with a seed contract, so many tens of thousands of euro. I think it was 15,000 euro there's about. But they have spent far more than that just to get to where they're at right now in, in R&D and investment money. And it's great what they're doing. Same thing with, with Thok. The same thing with the Spes Heavies. I'd like to see that sort of attention turn towards fencing masks okay. next okay but with with gauntlets i mean i've always used steel and i wouldn't touch the plastic ones um but i went to prague in about 2005 and i got an armorer there to start producing steel gauntlets in sizes small medium and large so they would fit pretty much anybody and i was selling them to my students if i remember rightly for about 200 euros something like that right which is reasonable so that i think so i think a lot of the cost issue is simply um tooling up for mass production and then making sure there's a market to sell those two because you know the, the person producing those gauntlets also produced all the armor or their company produced all the armor for the movie um a knight's tale mm-hmm. and they were geared up for basically they were geared up for supplying the movie industry um as so they're, they're a big operation um and that that meant they could they could do these gauntlets for us um at really really reasonable prices yeah that's the challenge with any kind of as op, of operation is you have to achieve volume and you have to have a working design that you can scale appropriately right. and and since the confines of the question was if somebody dropped a million dollars in my lap I, I don't. I'm not worried about turning a profit with this. I just want to see yeah, people yeah, yeah, sure. and Hema get get protected get and pre- have yeah, this right. available for them to do. And uh, I've personally am, have received a pair of pro gauntlets. I think they show a lot of promise for what they they are. Particularly just the weight 
steel gauntlets okay. may offer equivalent levels of protection, but in terms of the weight comparison, the pro gauntlets don't even feel like I'm wearing gloves. Maybe there's some steel gauntlets really? out there that feel the same thing. Yes. Yes. Okay. The I'm here to say that the hype is real in terms of you put on pro gauntlets, assuming they fit you, because it's crucial that they fit you, but if yeah. they fit you, I was doing the demo videos with South Coast Swords. We did an unboxing of the pro gauntlets. And there were points during the filming of those of that unboxing where I forgot I was wearing them. And I'm not even exaggerating or, or fanboying wow. or anything like that. I am I was skeptical of them as anybody else when I pulled them out of the box. I certainly had to fight my instincts to fanboy over the pro content. <laughs> but I'm also an engineer and I have to look at what's in front of me objectively or I'm sure. not fulfilling my personal oath to myself to be objective about what am I getting? Is this a piece of crap or is this really something? And in terms of the weight of the pro gauntlets, they don't weigh very much at all. And that is an advantage they would have over steel gauntlets. I still have to do more sparring with them to test them and and pulverize my hands <laughs> through additional wear and tear testing and, and not babying the gloves. I, I throw them in my gear bag. I treat them roughly. I'm like, you know what? You are not special. You are just another piece of my gear. If we're going to find out if you're any good, I've got to just abuse you treat. to find out if you actually stand up to, to the hype. Sure. Okay. I actually have a question. Um, I'm under the impression that uh, the mass of a piece of armor is a significant part of its protective effect because it, the mass absorbs the force. So a lighter piece of armor will absorb less of the force than a heavier piece. So do you foresee any issues? Well, firstly, is that correct? And secondly, do you foresee any issues with having very light gloves? How are they going to how they're going to get over the fact that there's less mass there to absorb the force. So that's an interesting physics principle, and I'm going to illustrate it by describing a, a bridge. You can, make a, you can make a bridge that supports quite a bit of, of load weight, but the bridge itself does not have as much mass on it as, let's say, uh, London Bridge, right? I'm, I'm going to use London Bridge, right? Think of a big, heavy stone bridge, but yeah. you could maybe with far less massive materials make a suspension bridge that spans the same distance or even a longer distance and yet still support more weight but with less mass the answer is in how is the force distributed when the load is applied that is one of the things that the pro gauntlet gloves i think are attempting to achieve i'm not going to say achieve because i don't 100 percent know yet because i haven't tested them fully but when you look at, I have to be skeptical. I have to preface no, no, everything. No, no, I love talking to engineers. It's like, no, you, you, I, I'm the same when I'm talking about my interpretations. It's like, you know, well, yes, but on this page and on that page, and we're not quite sure what the, yeah, you, 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 you stick to your engineering guns, so you, I'm sorry, right. I shouldn't have interrupted you. Carry on. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's fine. So when you look at, at the pro gauntlets very up close, you will see that they have thought about every single angle, every single divot, every single curve. Nothing is accidental. Nothing is there by mistake. Everything is there on purpose. And so where you choose to put your mass, how you've shaped the material such that when it's impacted and where the force is transferred – makes a big difference into what you feel and what will cause injuries. My experience so far with the pro gauntlets when I took hard, hard hits, as I felt them, it hurt, right? There was pain, but my hand was fine, 
right? It, like it would feel like I had been bruised, but I would look at my hand and my hand was fine because the force had been transferred around my fingers rather than into my fingers or the force had been ah. transferred up the glove and into my wrist instead of into my hands. And that is one of the advantages that the pro gauntlet could have, again, could have over could steel have. gauntlets, is that a steel gauntlet can create a, a mashing surface between the plate above and the, the base grounding underneath it, the handle of the sword. So the, you could have a lot of mass around your, your hand, but if you get hit hard enough, your finger is just going to get smashed. With a pro gauntlet, what I think they're trying for is to transfer that force away from injury points and into areas where it will not injure you. You will still feel it because the, you know, the energy has to go yeah. somewhere. It's conserved, but it won't ha- transfer in such a way that your bones are the things that end up receiving the energy and begin fracturing. So I guess it's similar to the difference between being slapped and being slapped by someone who has a razor blade between their fingers. Exactly. <laughs> where where that energy goes makes a big difference. In the same way that yeah. a good civil engineer building a bridge will send that that those heavy loads into the earth. The, the load is still there, but it's put mm-hmm. in such a way that it doesn't cause any catastrophic failures. It's doing what it's supposed to do. Okay. Well, if, if I had a million dollars... <laughs> I'd have already given it to like the first person who came on the show because her idea was brilliant too. And it was not oh, far was different that? to yours actually. Um, well, I, I, if I remember rightly, I don't know. I, it was Jess Finley who was my first guest. And I think she, well, I know we talked about head protection a lot. It could be she was more into putting the money into um, a center or schools or something. But anyway, you're not the first person to say we need better head protection and I would spend the money on that. So the money may already be gone, but it's imagine, <laughs> imaginary money anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, and competition is the best thing for HEMA, right? Both in the tournament hall and in the gear. Because <laughs> what, what people are achieving with gear is a phenomenal just in the last 10 years between Purple Heart Armory, South Coast Swords, yeah. all of the vendors, even the old timers like Albion who've been around forever making swords. Like, Mm-hmm. Just the sheer amount of off-the-shelf stuff is incredible. I can't wait to see what we have in five years. Yeah, I, I've been doing this since about '93, and for the first decade, you could not buy a sword off the shelf that was worth anything. Everything was custom. I, I can believe it. <laughs> so, just, so just yes, like we have man- come a very long way. Just like the manual scans were custom, according to what I've been told about those days. Oh, <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. You wanted a manual, uh, you needed to ask somebody. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yes. <laughs> yes, there were no manuals on the internet to speak of. I mean, we didn't see really high-resolution scans of the Getty manuscript from Fiore until 2006, by which point I had been tinkering on and off and working seriously with Fiore for 12 years. So... Yeah, suddenly to be able to see that actually that line is drawn on the other side, that was a game changer. It was amazing. So yes, we have come a long way. And and with the help of people like you doing the sciencey stuff, then hopefully we will come even further in the next 20 years. Yes, we will come further. Oh, there's one last, There's one other thing I would spend that million dollars on, and and I okay. would hate to take up any too much more time of this podcast with it. So no, maybe, no, no, a teaser, no, you... maybe a teaser for next time if we if I get to come back, I would certainly sure. invest some of that money in my cutting robot. 
Ah! <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. Sold. Okay. You're going to have to come back and tell us about your cutting robot. <laughs> yes. Because if you want to talk about applying engineering to swords, oh boy, I have stories about our cutting robot. It's even tried to attack me. So it's it's good. You have to be smarter than the equipment or robots will even take over HEMA. <laughs> All right. Okay. We we will schedule we will schedule a round two sooner rather than later. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. There, there's your teaser. There, there's your hook yeah. for, for the sequel. Just like just like any good uh, marketing ploy, right? I've learned from Marvel. That's one thing I've learned from Marvel. Hook them with the sequel. <laughs> uh, excellent. Well, Miles, thank you for talking to me today. It's been a delight. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Miles Cup. As you can tell, we have much more to talk about, and I'm certainly going to get him back on the show as soon as may be. But in the meantime, of course, you should go to the episode show notes where you can find links to the various projects he's been involved with and the transcription of the show in case you missed any of the nuances. Thanks, as always. Go to my wonderful patrons on patreon.com forward slash the sword guy who are currently enjoying the hitherto unpublished conversation between me and Damon Young, uh, where we discuss what actually is a sword, which is basically a swordsman and a philosopher who is also a swordsman, geeking out in depth and detail as to what actually makes a sword sword-like. What do we mean when we say sword? That sort of thing. Not only that, patrons also get the immense satisfaction of knowing that they are critically important to the well-being and longevity of this show they literally keep the microphones turned on so if that sounds like something you'd like to get involved with please go along to patreon.com forward slash the sword guy you can just follow us there to be apprised of updates and things you can also support the show with as little as a dollar a month get early access to pretty much everything i produce and you get to suggest questions to future guests and even pose follow-up questions to previous guests, which I'll be happily forward along. I can't guarantee they'll answer, of course, because, you know, I'm not their boss, but I will certainly happily mediate that exchange for you. So if that sounds like the sort of thing you'd like to get involved with, patreon.com forward slash the sword guy is the place. Tune in next week when I'll be talking to Dana Bergen-Wyman, who insists that I put a content warning out in that she, she says she has a very strong New Zealand accent. I think she sounds just fine, and I'm sure when you listen next week, you will agree with me. We discuss her involvement in the Bohut. Um, she's actually so basically the, the head honcho of Bohut in New Zealand. Uh, we will go into the details of what that means in the conversation. And she discusses things like traveling in armor to Europe to fight people with polaxes. And also mentions finding a bloody knife on the mean streets of New Zealand. So if that sounds like the sort of thing you'd be interested in, and how could you possibly not be, you need to go along to wherever you get your podcast from, subscribe to this show. And while you're there, if you have a moment, if you would rate it or review it, that would be very helpful too. Anything that gets the word out is helpful. So thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.